HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Matt Crafton. We'll talk to Matt about Cabernet Sauvignon, Napa, and Chateau Montalena. We'll taste a Montalena cab for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Virginia-born Matt Crafton received a degree in economics from the University of Virginia, then wine at UC Davis. He worked the, vine the vineyards of Virginia before moving west to continue his pursuit of wine. Ultimately, Matt landed at storied winery Chateau Montalena, where he has spent over a decade. In 2014, Bo Barrett appointed Matt to head winemaker. Is that all true, Matt? So far. Thanks, okay. Sam. Okay. All right. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Matt. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Um, let's give the uh, listeners a little uh, background context on who you are. So give me a little uh, brief uh, background on your journey in life and wine that got you currently to Montalena and you being the head winemaker. That's a big question. And remember what I told you earlier. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I am from Virginia. I love Virginia. Shout out to everybody listening down okay. there. For and, lovers. Yes. <laughs> Aren't we all? And uh, I think like most young people these days, went to college entirely too young at the University of Virginia, uh, studied economics, and then kind of in my fourth year, I think I came to my right brain sensibilities and decided that it was time to start thinking about creating and making things better and making people happy. And that led me to, I don't know, take a sharp turn away from possibly New York or San Francisco finance or law and decided to take a $7 per hour seller job in Virginia. Uh, my parents were very proud, as you can imagine. I was just say, sharp turn from your parents <laughs> right. loving you yeah. anymore. They were, they were paying the tuition. I'm sure they were right. thrilled. 
<laughs> and so I ended up, um, actually it's funny, I showed up for that job interview dressed for a finance, uh, for a finance job. So I was in like a suit and like nicely polished shoes and a briefcase, the whole shebang. And the winemaker I interviewed with was in, you know, a pair of jeans. He may have actually been in overalls. And uh, it was like the most hilarious juxtaposition you could think of. But um, that was the last time you dressed like that. Yeah. But tell me one thing. We get everything so far, but what's kind of burning inside that you want to do wine? Sure. So was there a family thing or an event or something that clarified all of that? So I think it started off with just, you know, learning about wine to impress girls in college. Okay. Which I think is is very legitimate. And uh, kind of fell in love with the concept of this is something that's really beautiful and amazing and different and distinct and there's so many layers just in terms of you know the art that goes into this and then there's the just the purity of like creation I think is really what drove my dedication and so um, I've always been one of those people who when I learn something I want to start at the very bottom and so that's exactly what I did I mean I was dragging hoses and you know cleaning out tanks and I stayed in Virginia for three years uh, working my way up uh, before deciding it was time to, to move to California. And ironically, Virginia has a fairly well-established, you know, winery and community. It definitely does. When I was there, I think there were about 80 wineries, and wow. now I think that number's doubled. And there's some people making some incredible wine. Yeah. So you leave Virginia after three years to California. What's the plan? Uh, the plan was just getting to California, okay. and I knew I needed to go and further my education. I think I had enough you know, brute force and ignorance to be able to, to figure things out as far as I could. So I enrolled at UC Davis, and uh, while I was in, in grad school, I worked for a bunch of really super smart winemakers, ended up working a lot in the vineyards, especially in Carneros and on the Sonoma side. And I think having that practical experience along with the education side was really, really valuable. And then um, after that, uh, so Bo Barrett and Cam Perry hired me in uh, 2008 on a one-year job. And I was really stoked. What does that mean? It was kind of like... They um, had the out to throw you out of there. Yeah. It it was definitely like like the Princess Bride kind of moment, like the Dread Pirate Roberts. It was like... How did you come to uh, Montalena and Barrett? So it was really funny, actually. So I was looking for a job. I was getting ready to graduate. And I was really gung-ho about going to work for another winery. And um, I won't tell you who that was. They're still close friends. But it turned out the it, the job just didn't shake out. And literally the day I found out that I, that other job wasn't going to work, I ended up getting an email from somebody saying, hey, are you still looking for a job? There's somebody in Calistoga that wants to hire. And I said, I'm looking like, holy cow, Calistoga is the furthest north end right. of Napa, furthest away from everything. And so I think my response was, I'd only be interested if it's Chateau Montalena. And the person was like, give me five minutes. And then I was on the phone with them. So That's crazy. Yeah, it was really cool. Super serendipitous. So you go there 2008 at what role? So I was enologist. And so um, I'd worked a lot on the vineyards. So my farming side, I think, was pretty strong. My uh, seller time from in Virginia and also working in Napa and Sonoma. I was really comfortable with all my seller work. And the role of an enologist is really, it's mostly lab work. And so you kind of have to understand those things, those three facets really well before you can, I think, start you know telling people what to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Now with enology, how does it break down as far as seller and the grape and the finished product and field, sure. the growing grape? Yeah, so they're all really related, as I think you know, and that's sort of the best part of the job is there aren't these silos or really specific delineations. So you get to see, as an an enologist, um, you get to do a lot of work on the chemistry side, on the biology side, and it kind of answers some of the questions about why we do certain things, right? Right. Because that's that's the big part of how you're successful is answering that why question. And so I did that for two years. But has it things have advanced so much, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, with data and analysis. And Absolutely. Available. I mean, do you use a lot of that stuff now? So I think that's been the real, that's been the real change over the last five years, as I think this brand has continued to really grow and evolve. Um, we're very, 
we're very forward looking and really excited about the future. And we like to use these very modern tools, but at the same time, keeping one foot in our heritage. I think that's really what sets us apart. I think you're obliged to that than a lot of other wineries. And, you know, we'll talk about the winery and the legacy and all that. But no doubt, Cab is king in Napa. No doubt. Um, and Cab is king at Montalina. Why is the grape so prominent in the region? Is it the climate? Is it the soil? Is it just good business? Because what you're paying for acreage? I mean... What's your take on that? So nowadays, I definitely think it's the latter. It's, okay. it, it's, it's good business. But I think originally, if you look back you know, 30, 40 years ago, we were still figuring out the, the right grape in the right place is probably the best way of putting it. And I think that if you look at the successive major plantings in Napa, so you're talking about the first major prohibition, post-prohibition replanting in the 60s and 70s, right. people were still figuring that out. And then we had another replanting in the 80s and 90s after phylloxera came back. Right. And at least for us, we're now diving into our third replant on our estate and that's you know 40 plus years with the same piece of ground with all that insight you start figuring out what really does well in certain places and why and so um, I think the producers who uh, like us who've been doing this long enough understand that we put Cabernet where Cabernet is going to thrive right we don't put Cabernet where it's not but there are plenty of other wineries who are in a different position <laughs> you're talking specifically about your oh, properties absolutely so you'll scope out the best opportunity definitely as definitely. far as all of that um, Bordeaux is also the other place where Cab is king mm -hmm. among other varietals I mean can you draw any comparisons? I don't think so. I think, Why? well, I think it's, it's a different place. Okay. And, and I think that's kind of the, that's the magic of, of location. And that's the, that's the magic behind terroir is even though we share the same variety, our expression is going to be totally different. You can't make Bordeaux in Napa Valley, just like you can't make Napa Valley in Bordeaux. So when you say expression, mm -hmm. can you describe a little, you know, a Napa Valley? A little, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and that, that expression as it's different to Bordeaux, I mean, just give me your take on that. Sure. So, I mean, I can't speak for the Bordelais, and I, I'm not going to try to. But what, like I, what you perceive or, yeah. or what you think sure. the Bordeaux is. But tell me Napa first. Sure, sure. So I, I think if you look at that concept of terroir, there is a component obviously of what's going on beneath the ground and what makes Napa Valley so special is are all the different soil orders and the topography the geology there's no place like Napa Valley and then you layer that in uh, you know the climate and for those of you that have visited Napa uh, you know it's a it's a pretty small spot we're probably we're a small gosh if we're a quarter of the size of Bordeaux I'd be right. shocked and, but in that tiny 30-mile-long valley, the differences in just exposure, temperature, and we're talking, you know, hot, you know, the, the high temperature of the day and the low temperatures at night, the differences in the angles of, of the sun as you move your way up and how the rocks interface with things, that right there is so, so different. So there's way more of those attributes than in Bordeaux. Well, I, th I think there, you know, Bordeaux's figured out that there are, you know, there's a classification system, right? And, right. and they have so much, they have 150 plus years of going back and being able to look at, you know, how their soil interacts with, with and makes their wine. You have to remember that we lost like an entire generation of winemaking because of prohibition. I mean, right. I'd say the American wine industry is probably at least a generation or two behind the French wine industry because of that. Easily. Um, you know, you talk about Bordeaux, it goes back even further. I think one of the things that Napa gets, I don't know, knocked, but compared is... Um, Ageability. Mm -hmm. I mean, you like Napa wines better, good for you. You like Bordeaux better, sure good for you. Uh, you like both, great, drink them both. But I think one of the things people talk about is the potential for Napa wines to age as well as Bordeaux. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, you make wines that yeah. are built for the cellar. But let's talk about a bigger view. The big picture? Yeah. What we want to get really well, divisive it, here. Is that a fair question? It's <laughs> yeah, like, no. hey, don't schlep me a Napa wine guy in and ask me about ageability against Bordeaux. But it's definitely an issue. You that's, know, so. the, that's definitely in our wheelhouse, though, I'd say. And, and I think that's kind of 
that's the final piece of the last question you asked, which is the last element of terroir is definitely the hand of man, right? right. I think that is on, on the farming side and the winemaking side. And at least with Montalena, we're really blessed with a site that lends itself towards making ageable wines. And right. I'd say that what we look for, we've never been um, one to follow trends. And I'd say that we're really, really proud of what we produce. And because of that, we try to make the wine that's really going to be the best representation of our site. I mean, think about how many site-driven wines there are in Napa Valley, maybe half a dozen or a dozen. And the rest are, as you said, they're made in a very, very different way. But uh, Right. So, like I said, I mean, you're, you're, with all the tools you have, you're building a wine to drink and to age. Yes. I guess the answer is that's not necessarily what everyone's doing because they don't want or they can't. Right. You know, they don't have the property and all of that. Um, but you would compare ageability with the good stuff. Absolutely. Any, yeah. We've I, said from I the beginning, we, 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 we're always willing to, you know, put our wines up against, you know, the best of Bordeaux. If we could do a 20-year vertical without skipping any vintage, we'd be more than happy to do that. Well, when we talk about Montalena, you'll give everybody a little brief uh, history of the Paris tasting, which ties all that in. Sure. Um, but before we leave talking about Napa and Cab and all of that, there's definitely been a movement um, towards restraint with mm-hmm. Cab, towards restraint with wines, I think, you know, this whole natural wine movement and all that. Um, people are dialing things back. Ironically, that's not you. That's not, you know, Montalena. Um, do you see that restraint going on and you continue to build a wine, a bigger wine? Is that history? Stay with the history of the winery legacy? I think it's it's a good question. Restraint is definitely a buzzword now that people like to throw around. There are a few of those. Um, it's tough to define, right? right? And I think for us, we definitely don't make what I would consider to be uber modern wines. Uh, I think our wines have always had. I mean, as, as what a, would you define as a modern wine? Like as in who? Or well, you, well, if after the show, if somebody tastes a Montalena sure. and they realize you're saying, you know, here's the way we build it, and it's not necessarily modern, how do you define modern? So. Maybe I should define us first. Go ahead. So I'd say we're we're almost something I would call it almost neoclassical in that it's 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 a very for those people who do drink Bordeaux you'll recognize the structure and stature of our wines, right. but there is something very unique about Napa Valley, Calistoga, our property. There's a flavor profile and texture you can't find anywhere else in the world, and that to your point lends right. itself to aging. And I think other people are, for whatever reason, have decided that the best expression of what they're making may have, I don't know, um, I don't know how we want to define it, but it's going to be different from that, right? right? It's more about, maybe it's more about the hand of man in the process. Uh, maybe it's about, uh, you know, in America, we like everything bigger and better. Maybe it's bigger, bolder. Maybe it's more ripe. Maybe it's more alcoholic. More oak. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's it's something I think it's tough to put your finger on it, but it's not something that we're really, that we really follow. We just kind of, we, we stick to our guns and we make what okay. we think is the best expression for us. Okay. Um, after Cab, and I would say Shard's sure, pretty well planned mm-hmm. in Napa. I mean, do you see another grape emerging? I mean, you could start with your properties, and then as you look out to Napa, is it basically going to stay that course, or do you see, you know, others? I know Merlot is is pretty Mm -hmm. big, but is anything coming down the pike? That's a good question. Well, for us, we we kind of, we have one leg in Bordeaux, so to speak, with the Cabernet. And then as you alluded to, we have a legacy in Chardonnay, which is really fun. And that's a completely different hat to wear, so to speak. And then we make, we make Zinfandel. We grow it on our property. And um, there's a Primitivo as a component of that. As you know, they're the same variety. And so we make that because we like to drink it. And we also make some Riesling. Uh, that comes from up in Potter Valley. So I like to say there are these. Where's Potter? Mendocino? It is. Mendocino. It's um, inland. It's funny how this big legacy mm. cab maker is making a, 
uh, a Riesling. Who pushed for that? It's it's old school, right? It? So it's we start, the Riesling was the first wine we released in 1972. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's, real, it's really old. School. Yeah, I mean, and that's before the, it was cool and sommeliers fell in love with it. Cool, exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, before it was hip and trendy. So I mean, that's that's one of the benefits about being a small family brand is it's not all about the bean counters and it's not all about the profit. We we make what we like to drink and we make it in a way that we think is really. Uh, really delicious. That's really what it comes down to. I think the answer sort of projects that what you do is what the Valley does. You kind of stick to, you know, what's important, what grows well, what's good for that, you know, winery, and then maybe go out to a few things. I mean, if you go to like the Loire, mm -hmm. you know, there's or Alsace, a zillion different grapes. Right. That's not going to happen so much in Napa, I guess. I, I think the you asked about like the finance side at the beginning. I think the economics are going to drive a lot it. of that. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, that being said, we have Petit Verdot on our property. We have Cabernet Franc. Uh, we have some Petit Syrah that we like. I mean, all these are, you know, colors in the palette, right. so to speak. Right. And they're all really fun to work with. And I think way. a bunch of other people are doing that, which is nice. And then some people have projects with some interesting grapes. But I think you're right. The location and the economics. Yeah, I mean, if if you're in a great if you have a great piece of ground for Bordeaux varieties, why are you going to mess around with something else? I, I agree. All right, let's talk about Chateau Montalena. Sure. Um, do two things for me. Give me a brief history of the winery because mm -hmm. it warrants a few minutes of that. You know, not everybody has a winery, you know, that has a legacy. And then talk about the Paris 76 tasting, you know, what it meant to wine and how uh, Montalena was involved. And you did a good job with your uh, bio. Did so you like that? don't go too crazy because <laughs> so, I want to talk about the winery and the wine. For sure. So Chateau Montalena was founded in 1882 uh, by a gentleman named Alfred Tubbs. And the Tubbs family owned it and, I guess, built it into a thriving business, essentially up until Prohibition. Prohibition shuts down essentially all winemaking uh, with, with a few exceptions. And at that point, we basically turned into one of the many ghost wineries. Um, their winery was privately owned. We had an owner who, um, Yort and Jeannie Frank, they used the castle as their house. Not a bad deal. And uh, But it was Jim Barrett and uh, in the early 1970s who put the, the castle, the name, and the vineyards back together. And at the time, you know, there were a few, you know, Robert Mondavi was around, uh, Charles Krug, that winery was around, but there weren't a whole lot of other wineries really thriving in the valley in the early 70s. And, and when so, you say castle, I mean, you're alluding to the fact that the physical property was different than anything else. That's right. So I probably should have mentioned that. So Alfred Tubbs brought an architect in from France and built an absolutely beautiful castle that's now on the National Historic Register. So that's literally where we still make our wine today. Right. And uh, people are... You, you drive, retooled it a little. A little right? bit, yeah. It's not quite the same yeah. inside at least. But it's, uh, it's really special. And I think if you drive up to the top of the valley where we are, people are shocked to see this castle sitting right there and talk about the rest of the property that's for right a second. so so yort and Jeannie frank when they owned the wine or the the castle at the time as their house yort figured he had to have a moat around his castle and so he dug what is now jade lake jade was his wife's nickname and so we have this really amazing like chinese inspired lake uh, so it's, you know, French castle, Chinese lake, Irish ownership, everybody's welcome. <laughs> so. it's, uh, it, it's totally unique. I mean, it's a great place to sit down, drink a glass of wine, it have is. a little picnic or whatever. Um, so that's the property. We'll talk a little about the wine and all that. But talk about the uh, Paris 76 tasting and how it involved Montalena. Sure. It's hard not to feel proud about that and be part of that history. Definitely, and that's that's an important part of our history. So when Jim Barrett purchased the property, it needed to be completely replanted, as you can imagine, just years and years of neglect. And it's one of the most unique sites, I'd say, in Napa Valley, and I've worked on a lot of different vineyards. Um, it sits at the base of this beautiful alluvial fan, and there's this volcanic ash you know, washing down. It's an amazing site. So Jim needed to replant. He hires Mike Gergich as his winemaker. And what do you need to replant? You need money. And so they decided to start making Riesling and Chardonnay essentially as cash flow. 
And I wish there was a more romantic reason for it, but that's where the rubber meets the, the road. The reason's the reason. And so the, the second vintage of the Chardonnay, the 1973, uh, was, um, was included in a, in a tasting by Stephen Spurrier uh, that pitted uh, some of these upstarts from California on both the, uh, the Chardonnay side and the Cabernet side with some of the best wineries in Bordeaux and in Burgundy. So Stephen was an Englishman? He was an Englishman. And what was he, a journalist or a winery owner, a he, wine shop owner? He or? owned a wine shop right. in, in, in Paris, and this was, I don't know, I don't know if this was a PR stunt or what, but right. I don't think anyone gave us a chance of winning. And all the judges were all French and were the prominent enologists and winery owners of the day. And uh, I think now it's turned into this super celebrated event but yeah at the time i think it was just george Tabor with time magazine was the only journalist who was there okay so but i think you know our victory on the chardonnay so Gergich makes the shard he does among the wines included from the states mm-hmm. is the shard i yes. think there was a shalone or something yep and freemark abbey was right. in there there were a few in there and a bunch of french guys are tasting mm-hmm. it and what happened so i think they they tasted through obviously i wasn't there you're talking white burgundy exactly there, right? and they're thinking, oh my gosh, this wine's terrible. It must be from California and uh, back to France. And then all of a sudden things, you know, the scores are revealed and there's this shock. And it was, um, it really, I think, set off a fire in the world that, hey, we can find great wines outside of France. And I think it inspired a whole generation of winery owners and winemakers to seek out new places and to, um, I don't know. That was sort of the beginning of credibility. It was. And That's exactly what it was. And attention and all of that. Um, are there still any of those wines hidden in the? There uh, are. There what are. Is it the seventy-three? There are a few the seventy-three. That's pretty special. You bring your checkbook next time. We'll, we'll make that work. Um, so that's that story is unique to Montalena and a couple other wineries, and it was a big deal. Um, let's talk about the winery a little. Let's talk about a broader subject, sustainability, which I know is a charge of yours. Uh, What does that mean? Sustainability for a winery, for what you want to do, and for Chateau Montalena. It's a big question. Yeah, it's like this is a natural potato chip. Exactly. This is a sustainable wine. Right, what is it, right? So when I started at Montalena in 2008, I noticed that we were doing all of these amazing things in the vineyard and the winery, but we weren't really talking about them because it was just part of good farming. It was a part of being good stewards of the land. You did it because it's best and right. That's exactly right. And, you know, Bo will tell you, just like my little kids run around in the vineyards now, so did his. And you wouldn't do anything to your farm that could possibly be harmful or hurtful. And so we wanted to make the, the best wine we could. And so we put forth those practices that we knew would take care of, you know, our two greatest assets, our people and our land. And so yeah, at the time, it was just part of who we were. And I said, well, wait a minute. We should get some credit for what we're doing here because it's not necessarily the easy way of doing things, but it's the right way. And so all I did was I started just listening to people and talking to some of the old timers who'd been around since the beginning and started writing things down. And then I just said, this is an important story we have to tell. And it's also, I'd say, it's a big part of who we are as leaders and I somehow became the champion of this in getting our Napa Green certification, Fish Friendly Farming certification. Um, so what are the things you have to do to get those certifications? I mean, what are some of the specific things sure. you practice now? Absolutely. So I, I think a lot of it has to do with just being a, a smart farmer, right? So it starts in the field. It starts in the field. And I think... And we talked about this a little bit before, which was starting to incorporate some technology, but also, so it looks at, at, you know, conserving our natural resources. It looks at, well, what's the, what's going to give the vineyard its greatest longevity? There's an eye towards quality, of course. And I mean, and that's really what it's all about. We don't think those are two different targets. We think you can grow the best possible fruit in a fashion that's also very environmentally sound and friendly that also allows our partners to make money so that their family farms can continue. And we also have to have this a great standard of living for the 70 families that 
depend on Chateau Montalina. Right. So it's it's those facets kind of weave together, I guess. So specifically, I mean, mm-hmm. are you practicing organics? Sure. Organic style, biodynamics? I mean, what are you doing out there? So biodynamics is a whole different story. Right. We can do a different show on that. Um, <laughs> yes, we do, we do farm organically. <laughs> we do farm organically. Uh, no, we don't have a certification. I think that has to do with, remember, organics kind of tells you what not to do. That's really how organics works. Thou shalt not use X. Right. And so, whereas I think sustainable farming is all very proactive and it encourages us to, um, if you look at your soil as a, as a bank, that's what our, our vineyard manager calls it. If you're going to make withdrawals and taking fruit out of the field, you have to make deposits also. So that's, you right. know, building up the soil, microbiology that's with compost, no synthetic fertilizers. Uh, we really don't use any pesticides. Um, it just, it's being conscious of that and looking not towards next year, but to the next generation right. of folks who are going to be farming here. Is it harder, more expensive? Um, do you net the same results? Right. It's a I great mean, question. Are you feeling good about it? But, you know, in the end, you're making wine. It's right. working that way for you, too. So I think that it's we feel great about it. Um, I'm not much of a feeler, I'd say, in general, but okay. I do feel good about it. Uh, I think that in a lot of ways, it is about doing something the right way. And sometimes that is the hard way. So, and we have to balance that. We have to balance the, okay, well, we're going to be, instead of spraying a pesticide or spraying an herbicide, we're going to be pulling a hoe plow. Well, there's diesel for the tractors. Like you have to think about that and the carbon side of things. So it's a balance and you have to look at the net result. But I think rarely do we see a conflict where it's like, well, we really should farm this way, but this is going to be detrimental to the fruit. You know, 45 years of farming the site has really shown us that we can do both things. We can accomplish both goods. And I'd say more than any other place I've ever been, we have an ownership group and we have employees who really believe in it. And I think the results really speak for themselves. Do you feel the rest of the valley is because... We're talking about soil, soil mm-hmm. for generations. Mm-hmm. If the valley's about making wine, it's about healthy soil. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the rest of the uh, valley is understanding and partaking in that? I think that if they want to be around for the next 10, 20, 50 years, whatever it is, they're so going So what is that, a no? No, I, I, think that, I think that you know there are 400 wineries in the valley, right? And I think there's some wineries like ours who recognize the big picture. And we see new wineries popping up every day and they think I'm here to make a quick buck or right. I want some prestige you know, project to feed my ego. But eventually they have to get in line and say that, wow, if I'm going to do this the right way, I need to start taking care of the piece of ground that I have. Right. And I'd say that the vast majority of people do recognize that. And so I, the shift is going in the right direction. Absolutely. And okay. it's, I think it's, it's really market-driven. I mean, when people ask us about this and when, they, when customers say that this is important, well, great, we can talk about it. Right. And it's something we've always been proud of. And now people are just starting to take note of it. Right. Um, let's hope, you know, that's the case times 10. Yes. That at some point, you know, you answer the question emphatically, yes. you know, and that the valley is protecting soils and, you know, thinking about sustainability. Um, I know we talked about this briefly, but get into it a little more. Um, when we talk about Montalena specifically, um, you talked about having this very kind of big, cool palette. Yes. Um, so soil, terrain, climate. I mean, you've been dealt a good deal on this. You have a lot to live up to. <laughs> well, yeah, or, you know, if you screw it up, you That's look like true, a dummy right. or whatever. But, you know, talk about, you know, the diversity of soils, you know, the climates, everything that you have to deal with um, to make the wines. So, I and, think and talk about, you know, you're a big winery now, so you grow estate-grown wines, which are on your own We're not property. that big, Sam. Okay. <laughs> but you contract some wine. So just, just yeah. talk about that big picture. Sure. So uh, maybe I'll answer your, uh, your last question first. Okay. So uh, with the Chardonnay we make, we do have a couple partners in that. And it's more about finding that right place. And if we could 
we don't make that much Chardonnay, you know, we make 10,000 cases of it. And you're it. right, you're not a big winery. No. I think that the legend, the name exactly. is bigger than the People output, think but both massive. are good. They are. Yeah, and, and so it's not this mass-producing winery. No, no, Let's no. take that off the table. Absolutely, yeah. and I think that's, we once we get to the point where we can't taste through everything, we know we're too big. And so, and there really are really, there are really no plans for volume growth. Again, that's a really wonderful part of our ownership. But we do, we, we have a, we have one very specific place we think our Chardonnay can be grown to make the style that we like. And we can't obviously buy every vineyard in that tiny little location. Incidentally, that's on the west side of the Oak Knoll district. Okay. It's at that sweet spot where we get enough fog in the morning. Uh, but also the afternoon heat to make a non-mallow Chardonnay. And so we work with, um, we have our own vineyard there, and then a couple of the other you know, family farmers in the area do grow some grapes for us. And then um, we do have one partner in our Napa Cabernet. We have one family there, and uh, they're the only partner we have in that, and everything else we grow so ourselves. So your grapes and their grapes yeah. are the only grapes. That's right. And so and it's, has that been a long-term relationship? It is, uh, 25 okay. plus years, which which is great. And so we're very, very careful about our relationships. We don't, again, we don't need to, you know, crank out a certain volume right. every year. It's about the right relationship with the right site that makes the wine better. That's what matters. And that ties back to your first question about what makes, you know, the Montalena estate unique. And I think it's, you know, Bo started talking about this in the 80s before anyone was really even thinking about it was, is it, is it above the ground? Is it the beautiful sunshine and flowers? Or is it what's going on beneath? And it's really both. And so for our small little, you know, 120 acre piece of ground, we've about 100 acres planted, you see more soil diversity on that small plot than you do in almost any other uh, vineyard in the valley of that size. So you alluded to talking about colors of the palette, and that's what I say. And it just, it gives you all these amazing tools to, if farmed properly um, to make something that's really unique and really special. So literally, lots vary because of soil, and when you blend Hugely. the characteristic of that lot gives you the opportunity, you know, for that diversity. I mean, and, and like, to give you a specific example, there are Cabernet vines that are literally 25 meters away from each other. One is, one vine is in straight volcanic ash it's this like orange solid rock called rhyolite and then you literally go 25 meters away and you're in this cobbly alluvium and, that's, and you pick the grapes you taste them and you could tell yeah we were doing the math last night on how many grapes we eat during harvest it's something like 10,000 <laughs> it's like frightening grapes, right <laughs> you know um talk to me about vintages i think uh, nap has been blessed with some decent vintages so We'll talk about the wine in a minute, but what current vintage is on the market? Sure. So uh, with Chardonnay, that's going to be our 2016. Okay. And uh, with the Estate Cabernet, that's going to be 15. But um, as I think you probably know, we one of the amazing things about Montalena is that we hold back anywhere from 5 to 10% of our production every year for those two wines for re-release. Right. And typically, we when we release a Chardonnay, we also release the vintage five years before as well. So the 16 and 11 are together in the market. And then with the Estate Cabernet, it's usually the current release and the vintage 10 years previous. So the 5 and the 15 are together. And I think people are going to have to play that back. <laughs> um, but talk, <laughs> Too much math. Talk to me about vintages, not necessarily the wine. Uh, 18 recently ended. Was that a good vintage? Great. So for Montalena? So I think it, yes. So the short answer okay. is yes. For us, we don't, we don't look at vintages as good and bad. It's really about how we express the wines. And maybe this, okay. maybe this ties into your modern question, maybe. Yeah. It's that we don't have to, we're not looking to make some wine that fits into a certain box. We know we've been successful if we've been able to take the best parts of every vintage we're given and changing our winemaking to be able to express that in the wine. It's a really fun challenge to have. But if you're really into so the vintage is the vintage. The question I had, you know, which was going to follow, which kind of falls into what you're saying is, do you follow a style, a formula? Is it about nature? Is it about the vintage? And you started answering that. The first part is, is there a Montalena style or formula that mm -hmm. regardless of what you want to do, this is who we are, you got to follow? So 
how does that work, you know, vintage by vintage? And is, is there a style? I mean, explain that long question as best as you can. Yeah, there's no yeah. safe that we open up and take out, like, the recipe for Coca-Cola. There's, there's none of that. It's, if there's any style. Because of what's dealt to you. That's like right. Like you were talking exactly. about. Exactly. And it, it, I'd say it's much more challenging to do it the way we do it, but you have to have that, uh, that little bit of right brain craziness to love this because you are really starting from scratch every year in terms of how we're going to make the wine, and we really let the, the, the common thread be the site. And, but you need a unique site to be able to do that. And I think and a you, lot of people you give You have that. Uh, we definitely do. So the wines are known for being rich, integrated oak. Uh, there's a purity of fruit, texture, structure. Um, would you say that all comes out every vintage? Yes, and, and it's in its own some way. Of those things more tannic, less tannic wine. Well, we talk, we're talking about restraint, right? And right. sometimes the the smart thing to do is to not go full throttle on something. We want all of those nuances to come out every year. I want you to be able to taste the 2018 in the glass when it's eventually released, and that's going to be different from the 15 because it was a completely different vintage. Right, that's fair. Um, we're talking to Matt Crafton. Matt is the winemaker at Chateau Montalina. We're going to take a quick break, um, but before we take the break, I just wanted to ask you one last thing. Um, any wines, varietals, regions that are exciting you now outside of, obviously, the confines of Chateau Montalena and the insulated world of Napa Valley. Absolutely. Well, so what's turning you on? So my family, we typically take a trip up to the Willamette, usually every year. And so I have a lot of friends from my Pinot Noir days uh, who've migrated up that way. You like what's going on there? I think it's really cool. Uh, I think it's a, it's a huge valley, as you know, and they're just still starting to work on the, the valley floor. Very few people are working the hillsides yet, right. which is, I think, where it's the crazy. magic's going to come from, right? Yeah. And so seeing that industry develop and what people are doing creatively, I think, is really super cool. Anywhere else? Out of the country? Out of the country right now, probably Spain. I've always been a big fan of wines from Priorat. Uh, they're tough to find in, in California, so unfortunately. So in Spain, Priorat's the region yeah. that you favor the most. Yeah, I love the, the slate there. I think that's something we don't typically have yeah. get to play with. Uh, we'll get more out of you when I subject you to uh, our wine list. Okay. Uh, Matt, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Matt Crafton, uh, the head winemaker at Chateau Montalena. You're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. with our guests, Matt Crafton. Matt is the winemaker at Chateau Montalena. Matt, we don't let anybody leave the show without answering our wine list. Five questions. We didn't brief you on any of these. Don't excel or obsess. They're very base. <laughs> um, first question is, what are you drinking now? And you may have answered it with Oregon, but think beyond. What's uh, in the fridge? What's on the table? That I, what's tickling you? And this is not just tasting Montalena wine. Sure. So I'd say that is definitely probably 
the number one region that is tickling my fancy right now. Is Oregon? Definitely. Um, would you be so kind as to direct us to an interesting wine or two specifically? Sure. Uh, some of my favorite producers would have to be, I think, what Domaine Drune is doing there. There's a really wonderful small project with a former Montalana colleague named uh, Greg Ralston. His label is Lavinia, and those wines are... Spell. L-A-V-I-N-I-A. Okay. And that's a really small production wine. Uh, Isabel Meunier is the winemaker there. And I'd say our friends up at Ponzi, I think um, one of the things, you know, Oregon does that I think is very different from Napa Valley is they'll look for diversity in their wines by planting different clones on the same piece of ground. Right. Whereas we will, you know, maybe farm based on soil type and we'll change our clones based on that. They'll put like 20 different clones on one piece and let that build the diversity in their wines. That's crazy. So it's a really different focus. Let's think who else. Um, Bethel Heights is a favorite. Give me one more. Um, Bergstrom. Okay. Those are all, you know, some Mm -hmm. of those are very well known. Yes. Lavinia is probably new to some Mm -hmm. people. Um, I'm the one dwelling on the question now. Um, And do you draw any comparisons to Oregon, Pinot, and Burgundy? It's a different place. I think... think The wine itself? It is. The place produces a different... Well, you, you can see that so many Burgundians have moved into yeah. Oregon, so that so that's says something, right? Yeah, and and yes, there's the you know the so the aspirations seem to be going east to west. <laughs> yes, you know the Europeans are coming in, which is cool. All right, we're done with that question. Okay, <laughs> tell me your uh, favorite wine and food pairing. Do you have one? Not something you eat every night, even every month, sure. but what? And we have a rule on the Grape Nation. Okay, what's the rule? Can't say champagne and oysters. Okay, well, that's, All right? I don't think I'd it's do too that base, anyway. So you yeah. got to give me something else. So well, I'd you say, like champagne, right? Of course, who doesn't? I'd say, let, let's do a Montalena one first. I'd say Montalena Chardonnay and smoked salmon with creme fraiche. Okay. That's, uh, I think, the acid in our wine and the, uh, the smokiness in the salmon are really, a really nice component. And then I'll give you a, a good one, a crazy one. So This I'll, is your favorite, not picking a pairing. Totally. Go um, ahead. I'd say older Petite Syrah and lamb. Now, how old? Early 2000s? Yes, 90s. exactly. Yeah, okay. I'd say early 2000s okay. if you find a good Why producer. does... Lamb is gamey, mm-hmm. a little oily. Why does Petite Syrah work so well? With well, that? I think it has to be older Petite Syrah. You have to get past that massive tannin structure okay. and get down to some of the basics. That that variety has just incredibly beautiful earth tones that, that seem to just pair really well with lamb. So. That could be a first on the Grape Nation, mm-hmm. Petite Syrah and lamb. Well, I'll have to check it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? A place that does it well, you feel comfortable, the selection's great, the knowledge, and probably for you, you know, in your area, unless you have such a favorite place in New York or Paris, just give me a few places. I wish I had a favorite in New York or Paris. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You don't get out of the cellar much. (laughs) No, they don't let me out much. So, uh, and in general, I'd say I don't really hit wine bars very often, believe it or not. Usually at the end of a day or whatever, I'm looking for a cocktail or something like that. But I'd say in Napa, uh, the first one would be Cadet Wine Bar. Down in Napa. Yep, that's, Napa. that's a fun one. They've they been a, around a while. Yeah, and they, they, have a, they have a great wine list, and usually you run into a lot of industry people there. That's a good one. I think the other one, just because of the depth of the list, would be Press in St. Helena. Right. Uh, Amanda has a, just an absolutely fantastic selection, including some old wine. And a good ones. restaurant, too. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so that's a good answer. How about Matt Crafton's favorite all-time wine? could That's be tough. one, it could be two. Okay. When I started asking that question, it boiled down to the person's experience with the rarest or most expensive wine. Okay. It morphed um, into the experience. Okay. Here's the champagne I got, drank when I got engaged and all that. What, what wine still sort of resonates? So I'd say two come to mind. The first one would be when I was working in the cellar in Virginia. Again, didn't really know what I was into, didn't know what I was in for. And the winemaker I was working for brought out a 1974 Heights Martha's Vineyard, and I got it. That's the gold standard, right? That was it. And at that point, I said, holy cow, look at how old this wine is. Look how amazing it is. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It must have been 2003, 2004. 
I had it probably 2008 mm-hmm. and nine, and it was still rocking. I'm sure. Yeah, it was like beautiful you know, wine. You know, and I'm with a bunch of Bordeaux and Burgundy mm-hmm. guys, and they were like, "Oh wow." Um, is there a 74 Montalina? There cat? is. So remember Anybody that. Did you ever crack into that? <laughs> Whenever we can. <laughs> okay. So you have to remember we were replanting back then. So the Montalina Cabernets we made in the 70s up until about the 78 vintage were, were typically sourced. Right. So North Coast, Sonoma, Not Napa, a real representation. Right. Not necessarily of the site, but they're really fun little curios. If you can find one, it's absolutely worth picking up. Yeah. Um, the Heights is a, a terrific choice. Um, all right, last question. Answer this to the best of your ability because you're a winemaker. You're this cloistered guy who never sees the sun that much and gets out and doesn't go to <laughs> wine bars, and I feel for you, but that's okay. Um, tell me in your mind, retail, best wine around 15 20 bucks. 20 um, I need a red. I need a white. Can they be from the same producer? Yeah, but that's boring, but uh, it's okay. I don't want to call you boring before you answer the question. Um, you can give me a grape, like Muscadet is a great value. You can sure. give me a region, the Loire. You can give me the maker. You can give me all of that. But figure 15, 20 bucks. The setup has always been my kids are in their 20s. They're going to a dinner party. They're going to look like shitheads with a $9, $10 bottle. They're not spending 35, 40. Not yet. So if they can, not yet. So if they can get in at 18, 20, 15, 17 with an oh wow wine, what are they doing, red and white? So the first uh, name that came to my head, and this is why it fits both, would be Gigal. And, okay, uh, G-U-I-G-A-L exactly. from the Rhone. Exactly. Okay. And, and I think most of us know Gigal from his, you know, super amazing Lalas wines that Landon, right but, but his you know Cote de Rhone blends his the village wine blancs are incredible values so you feel as strongly I know the reds are great values the whites absolutely values. and and I think it's always a surprise when you bring a a white wine from Rhone and most people are they first right. they start scratching their heads and they're like wow this wine's actually amazingly delicious Matthew that's how you answer that question perfect good job all right so good job on that we're going to post your answers on our social media our Facebook page our Instagram page um, as we do every week so if people want to, you know, know the specifics of what we talked about, we document it. All right, Matt, every week we taste a different wine on air. Um, it's part of our weekly wine sip. Um, we're going to taste a 2015 Chateau Mondelena estate wine, top of the list for your place. Um, tell me a little more about this wine. So we started making this wine in the late 1970s as a you know originally an expression of place so uh in america as you can as most of us remember there was a big push towards reserve wines but we really never jumped on that bandwagon so this is really a combination of our best hillside vineyards our best alluvial blocks and what you get is again those layers of flavor complexity and most importantly a real window into the vintage and the site so this is really a wine that can't be made anywhere else so when you say we don't make a reserve wine Mm -hmm. i mean is that just words or is there something that has to be reserved so this is this is us tasting through these blocks knowing what their potential is farming them appropriately you know making you know fermenting and aging them appropriately to highlight the best parts of their individual characters. And then when you put that together in this beautiful assemblage, you get something that is wonderfully unique. Nice. All right. So let's, uh, let's evaluate this wine. Let's give it a sniff and we'll throw it over the tongue. Sure. And we'll see what's going on here. So let's start with color. Sure. As like most good Napa cabs and certainly Montalena, it's a pretty dark brooding wine. Absolutely. What's the color descriptor on this? Is so, you know, this isn't isn't quite garnet. There's still some purple around the, edges. the edges, right? There's uh, so certain... garnet would be just a black glass, right? Okay. And so there's, um... but it's beautiful the edging. It is, and I think that's again we're we're not drinking ink here. This is this right. is Cabernet. All right, let's go nose. Um, I want you to give me your descriptors. You should be good at this by now. Yeah, the marketing speak, right? So, well, <laughs> don't BS me. What uh? 
What are we smelling here? So I think the first thing we'll start off with what we're not smelling. So this is not a an oak driven wine. No, right? no heavy oak. That's on right. The so this is this is really the site. So and fifteen was a very just you know fruit forward rich vintage, and so we worked really hard to be able to highlight that. So I'd say predominantly this is a nice. This is a kind of a cacophony of red and dark fruits. Uh, definitely the raspberry and blackberry come through very prominently. There was also on some of those really high up hillside blocks, we typically get a lot of perfume. And so, it is perfumey. yeah, there's some really beautiful perfume on this. It is perfumey. Um, All right, let's go mouthfeel. Okay, great. It's a big wine. It is. It's not crazy, unctuous, glycerin y. Not yet. And I think it will evolve to that. It is. So remember, we're talking about a 30 plus year wine here. Okay. And, and so the, the challenge on our side is how do you make this wine delicious upon release, but also when you lose it for 25 years in your cellar, Sam, and you find it, it still has to taste good. So, so now it's a medium plus or even yeah. a little beyond that, yeah, but it'll, so. it'll, it'll, it'll flesh age. out over time. And you notice the acidity right off the bat. Um, that That's the kind of the backbone that gives us the ageability. Again, beautiful fruit. And if you let this wine open up in the glass for a little bit of time, and I'm not a huge fan of decanting for this reason, uh, you'll start getting some of those secondary characters that we were talking about before. So with this wine, don't decant, just let it evolve in the glass as that, you pour it out? That's like, you know, fine. exactly. Bo says that, it's Bo Barrett, my boss, our CEO, he says that you know, decanting is like skipping to the end of the movie. You want to enjoy everything that happens. And we really think about that when, when we're making the blend. So this wine will certainly evolve in the glass over the next few hours. All right, so let's do palate. Do mm -hmm. the palate descriptors match the nose, or are there other things there? So you're definitely you there? there's definitely going to be that, that that fruit component from the vintage, but you notice the tannins are they're still they're still angular, but they're also fine at the same time. That will those will soften and really broaden with when, some time in glass. Let's tell people the tannins are what the the tart thing or the dry the puckering That's thing. Right. When you say it's angular, right. I guess when you say it's smooth, it's almost everyone gets that seamless. Yeah. But when you say it's angular, what is, what is what should people expect to feel in the mouth? So the the best way I've been able to explain this to people is you have to go into your house and get a couple pieces of fabric and use it because you know tannins are a tactile sensation. Right. So you should get a piece of you know cotton and feel that that's relatively smooth. You should get a piece of sandpaper and feel something prickly, some burlap, some satin. All those sensations are basically so smooth, grainy, right. small grainy, exactly. you know, out there. That's so angular is feeling that grain. Exactly. And so yeah, tannins or you know what we taste in tea if you will it's right. that it's a, it's a it's a sensation not a flavor all right what tell me what's a good pair for this wine what would we pair this with oh this is that's a tough one um not because it's not pairable, but because you can go so many different directions tough, right tough, now with this. Easy. Right. Asparagus. <laughs> Come on, it's so, not that tough. No, no, no. So I, th I think in New York, you, you have plenty of really great options. I mean, this is, this is right now, this is a great red sauce wine for okay. sure. Uh, as this wine starts to age and develop. When you say red sauce, so mm -hmm. bowl of pasta? Absolutely. Chicken parm with a lot of sauce? Totally. Veal and I, parm? And okay. I think that's really the mark of a good wine, is that you have that ability to, to really you know, pair it with anything that's What about good. what people people usually expect you to say, which is Red a big meat. bloody steak. Right. It's fine with that? Of course. And and I think that it's it's less about, you know, the food necessarily um, calming the wine down. It's more about the wine helping make the right. food taste better. Which is right? really what wine and food is about. Exactly. You know? Don't fight. You know, they should uh, complement each other. Um, do you like this wine? Are you happy with it? So as a winemaker, I'm always looking for what I don't like about it in terms of what All we right, can I'm do better. I'm curious about that. Sure, sure. Because it's a very highly regarded yeah, wine. Yeah, it's a super highly so regarded wine. So if you're picking, you're picking at something mm -hmm. that came out pretty well. So what is that? So I think for us, it's it, we always have this nod towards you know constant improvement. And I think what this wine is, this is a bold, you know, powerful wine. And I think over time, some of the more... Um, the more interesting nuances are gonna will, will come out. So these are the will the tannins smooth out. They will. Okay. And, and I'd say if that's one thing that there's a teeny bit of alcohol, which I don't mind. Will that it calm will? Down and a and this is you know this is a 14-3 wine. Not crazy, no. but there's alcohol there. I, exactly. And so I'd say if anything, we we don't want 
we don't want the Montalena character to get lost in any of our wines. And I think this is a great expression for a very ripe vintage, but I'm always looking for ways I can do things better. Okay. Um, that sounds good. So this is the 2015 Chateau Montalena Cabernet Sauvignon. This is what's on the market. It's the estate. It says Montalena Estate on the top of the label on a gold band. Um, Matt said it's not a bad idea to eat this with a nice big chicken parm. Mm -hmm. Sounds good to me. All right, Matt, we got to wrap up the show. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and the hashtag The Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at benruby and the hashtag The Grape Nation. You can subscribe to Grape Nation Podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Like I said earlier, We'll post Matt's wine list answers and our weekly wine sip selection on all of our social media um, in the next few days. Matt, if we want to find you and Chateau Montalena on social media, where can we look to? So the winery is at montalena.com. Okay. Contact us on you know, Facebook, Twitter, phone, email. If you want to see me, there. come to the winery. Okay, and if people want to follow you, do you do much social media? No, I don't. Damn, you got to get out of the basement. <laughs> I'm telling you. Too much ping pong. Um, all right, I want to thank our guest, Matt Crafton. Matt is the uh, head winemaker at uh, legendary Chateau Montalena. Thanks to our engineers and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. <laughs> For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.